You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Benient with Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with Dr. Abby Eblen and Dr. Susan Hudson of Nashville Fertility Center and Texas Fertility Center. And I am from the Las, uh, Fertility Center of Las Vegas. And we are here to talk about fertility and all of the glorious tests and procedures and consults and things that lead up to it. But um, but first, just wanted to see what surprising things have happened to you guys over the course of your years, whether that is personal or professional, like what things have just kind of fallen out of the sky in your lap that were fortuitous, fun things. So that's, there's a lot of directions I could go with that, but, um, I'll, I'll keep it, keep it a little bit more. I mean, we the, are uncensored, that's so right, yeah. you could get yeah. away so, with um, a whole lot. So uh, something really interesting that happened to me or fun that happened to me that just kind of fell out of the sky is for several years, my husband and I would go around Christmas time to New York City to see the lights. And mm -hmm. um, and it was just a really kind of magical time. And every time we would go, and this was when David Letterman was still filming, every time we would go, we would, you know, try and call the number that you call to try and get tickets. And you had to call in a certain span of time. And, you know, we would start immediately and never could get through. And so finally on our, the third time we went, when David Letterman was just in the last few months of of doing the late show, we were in Times Square. We'd just come out of a, a play that we had been to. And this person walked up to us and said, hey, would you like to go to David Letterman? And, and my husband was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And I was a little more reserved. Uh, you know, I kind of whispered in the, out of the corner of my mouth, you know, don't give out your credit card number and don't give out any <laughs> personal information. And Always the skeptic. I'm, just, I'm a little more suspicious you by nature. you clutching your purse a little bit I, more I was. Closely. I was clutching my purse and I thought, this person is trying to scam us. And so the only information they got were our names. So I was like, okay, I'll give that out. And then we got this piece of paper, you know, she and she explained that, you know, this this group was coming through. They had a bunch of seats in the audience, but they had gotten waylaid and were not going to make it. And so they needed to fill the audience. And, she, you know, she seemed pretty up and up, but still, you're in Times Square in New York City, you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, if you're going to meet some people that are a little unusual, that's the place you're going to meet them. And so so the next morning we get up and I was still very skeptical. And so we showed up at the David Letterman where he filmed at the theater and we stood in line, and finally, um, a man came up, and I, I kept telling my husband, we're wasting our time here. We're never going to get in. So the man walks up, and I showed him this piece of paper that we had, and he's like, yep, that'll get you through the door. So it was really cool. We went in there, and we got to see Will Smith and, you know, tape with David Letterman. It was just the coolest experience because we were like— We've been trying to do this for years, and we finally get to see intentionally. And then it just walk up. Yeah, it yeah, happened. It's just really cool. It just kind of fell out of the sky. Was it everything you expected when you got in there? Well, it, it was really exciting to be there with Dave Letterman, and, and a comedian comes out and kind of worms the audience up ahead of time, and that was kind of fun. But you know, I will say, oh, I didn't was, know that. Yeah, I didn't know that they prep. Oh you first. yeah, yeah, yeah. They prep you, and you know, get you in a funny mood and laughing, and so we. Um, so when the show started, though. Unfortunately, the cameras, the theater is a lot smaller than what it appeared on the TV set when that, you know, would show mm -hmm. the audience. It's a lot smaller. And so um, 
when you look for David Letterman, it was really hard to see him behind all the cameras. And, and you had to sort of look around the corner to see the guests that he was interviewing. So it didn't feel like you were kind of right there in the middle of it in the way you felt when, you know, you watch it on TV. Mm-hmm. It's but always it was, a little different. It was a cool thing. You know, we were talking about bucket list items the other day. And that was, I guess, kind of one of my bucket list things. You kicked the bucket. I list. kicked the bucket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love going to New York. I love visiting. When I was in um, medical school, I spent five weeks up in New York doing a rotation. And um, it was one of those um, kind of out of lemons, you create lemonade because I actually flew out of Texas um, to go up to New York the first day that flights were available after 9-11. Oh, my goodness. And um, I had had this rotation set up for months and I had paid a lot of money to go do it. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to see and I'm going to go do. And it was... So you were flying into New York City. I was flying into New York City the first day of my time. And it was... It was very interesting to see, you know, New Yorkers at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the city was obviously very, like, somber and everything like that. But as I was trying to make the most of everything, um, because a lot of people had canceled reservations and canceled tickets, um, for me, it was an amazing time to go there because I was able to get front row seats at Broadway productions. And oh, yeah. um, we, would, we would be walking around town and be like, oh, let's go see if we can get reservations at blank place, you know, somewhere that you normally would have to have reservations like months in advance. And there would be like, um, yeah, we can see you in 15 minutes. Oh, wow. And, um, so it was, it was a great, it was a great time for me to visit, though it was obviously a, a really sad time for um, for the country, for and the that country city and especially. the city yeah. itself, yeah. Well, it's such an interesting comparison between expectation and reality. Of you expect to get tickets when you call a million times, and you expect to be turned down, and then you get to the actual place, and all of a sudden, it works works out just the way it should. So kind of like fertility. (laughs) Expectations and reality. On that note, expectations and reality. So when a patient walks into your office, she or he calls and says, okay, I want to talk with the famous Dr. Eblen, Dr. Hudson. And they get there and they fill out their paperwork and they do all the normal front desk crap, Mm -hmm. uh, usually more associated with insurance than anything else. Once they they get into your office, what what happens? Like, what's standard practice at your guys' offices? Usually when they first get there, they meet with my nurse, and we do the usual kind of blood pressure, pulse, vital sign kind of thing on the female patient. And then we have a consult room, so a fairly small room. We kind of sit and talk for a little bit. And I really, honestly, just try and get to know them a little bit at first because, and I'll, it'll be interesting to hear your viewpoint. I think patients, when they first get to the office, or many of them are really worried and scared. And, you know, I don't know what they're expecting, but I think, you know, they probably know they're going to be sharing a lot of personal information that maybe they've not shared with anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really challenging for them just to get through the door. I mean, wh- what do you think, Susan? How does it work in your office? So uh, we do things a little bit different. So, I, you know, we do the normal front desk thing where you have to fill out all your paperwork. Unfortunately, I think that's, you know, the reality of medicine. But um, as soon as they finish that, I actually go out to the lobby and 
get the patient myself. Um, I, I recognize that just taking their first step into the fertility doctor's office, they've already surpassed 90% of the people out there in, in courage um, because that's a big step. And so I go and personally bring them back to my office. And my office looks more like a living room than it does a doctor's office. Um, it's, you know, bright colors and cushy couch. And, you know, I, I always tell people um, that I, I know nobody actually really wants to come and see me. Yes. Um, but I want to try to make it as comfortable as possible. And then, and then we do something similar, kind of sit down and talk and kind of find out what brings them. Because, you know, people have all kinds of reasons of wanting to come to the fertility doctor. Sometimes it's to get treatment. Sometimes it's to get answers. And sometimes it's just they need to talk. And so um, we kind of go through that, kind of go over medical history and that type of thing. What about you, Carrie? Pretty similar. I I also see patients in in my personal office. And so it's not not quite big enough to be a living room, although I do joke with my staff or my staff teases me is probably the better way to explain that one, that the chairs that I have in my office are these big, comfy white chairs. And I have had so many people call after sitting down in them with a spontaneous positive pregnancy test that my staff warns each other, don't go sit on Bedian's chairs (laughs) if you don't want any extra action happening in your life. Um, And so... So they come back and they're they're in my office and and we do all the normal first date stuff and go through their history and ask all the the nitty gritty questions about not only what medical history do you have and what do you see a doctor for or should you see a doctor for um, and history and medications and all of that. But we start to talk about what are your periods like and do, if they've got a male partner, does he have difficulty getting an erection? Has he ever been on testosterone or any exposures and all of the routine questions with him and just really start to go through the history. And a lot of times I find that the patients are very relieved to have someone just listen because we have usually at least 30 minutes, which in these days is unheard of to get to spend with a doctor to sit down and go through their history and and don't really shy away. If it takes longer to get that information out, we take longer. And so how do you think your male patients typically respond to you? Do they do they seem really excited to be there or do they seem a little worried or what's the typical male response when you bring, because I think most of us, I, I see a husband and wife together or partners together, basically. I think, so I also see pretty much partners together. I prefer to given the option because that gives me more of a full story, but I have yet to see any guy who's super excited <laughs> to be in the office. <laughs> Yeah, that's my typical response. Too. Yeah. I just yeah. wanted to make sure that was yours and not something to do with me personally. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm pretty sure that as much as the women don't want to be there, the men don't really want to be there don't even want to do that. more yes. because they know what is expected to the, of them. And ultimately, with respect to testing, because for the guys, my routine is to order a semen analysis as well as some blood work to make sure that there's no infections. And a lot of the guys come in and they're like, do I, do I need to collect now? Am I doing that here? And I'm like, no, you are not doing anything of that sort in my personal <laughs> office. You know, we we have separate there, collection rooms for that, but you are not, you just keep it in your pants, sir. Um, <laughs> they're, they're usually very relieved when when I'm like, oh no, we get to make an appointment so that we can do this at, at your time. And so. I always laugh though, usually when I say, because in our office, sometimes we will have men scheduled for their semen analysis on the day that the couple come in, particularly if they come from a distance, mm-hmm. it yeah. saves them time. And so I'll usually look at the gentleman and, or the partner and I'll say, you know, 
know, do you have an appointment scheduled for a sperm test? And they'll look at me with this horrified look and they'll, they'll, then they'll invariably look at their partner and uh-huh. their partner will usually go, oh yeah, we have that schedule. He'll be glad to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and many times he will do that, but it's, it's very, I think the it's a very nerve wracking. The emotions associated with it are not necessarily glad or happy to, it's he will do it. He knows what's expected. Well, but. and I think women are tend to be more comfortable in a gynecologist office and men, for obvious reasons, just aren't. And they yeah. typically don't see doctors very often either mm-hmm. unless they've got a cold or they really have a, a, a problem. And so I think sometimes it, it just feels even more foreign to the male patients that we see than the female patients I, sometimes. I think women grow up knowing about more about pre- preventative health care. And, you know, we learn about having to go get our pap smears and... And the expectations for it, normal health. It, exactly, exactly. And I don't necessarily think that men in our society um, really focus on preventative care and going to see your doctor on an annual basis quite as much as women do. Do you order anything else routinely for your guys besides a semen analysis and maybe some blood work? I usually start with that. And then depending on what those results are, sometimes we need to do additional testing. Um, You know, even with the semen analysis, if the first semen analysis comes back concerning, you know, I always tell the guys we never judge them based on a single semen analysis. Mm -hmm. That's a snapshot in time. And really, it's a reflection of their life over the past almost two and a half months. So, um, you know, sometimes we end up needing to repeat that. We may have to do some additional blood tests or even some specialized Mm -hmm. tests um, looking at the sperm more specifically. And I would say, too, the sperm test is a little bit like your blood pressure. It's not exactly the same thing every single time a man leaves a sperm count, um, but it can fluctuate up and down, usually kind of around a baseline. If there's mm-hmm. significant fluctuations, that's concerning them. But that's not very common, I think, for most of our you know male patients. Mm-hmm. So what routine blood work do you do on your lady patients? Routine blood work I usually do is an anti-mullerian hormone level, or AMH. Mm -hmm. And that's a hormone that really kind of looks at all the little tiny microscopic eggs that the patient has in her ovaries. Um, We can also look with ultrasound to give us a little bit of an idea of the eggs that are available over the the portion of the next few months. Um, When we do ultrasounds, I tell patients when we look at their ovaries, we like to see around, I don't know, four or five little tiny eggs that are sort of on the launching pad that may be ovulated over the next two to three months. And the AMH really reflects more the eggs that we can't see. It's kind of like looking at the tip of an iceberg. If you see a big tip on the iceberg, you know, under the water, there's a even bigger iceberg. Same thing with the eggs. We like to see four or five per ovary, but we know that there's probably millions or thousands at least, millions below the surface. And that's kind of what the AMH looks at. So what about you, Susan? What do you do? So I generally do AMH with the FSH and estradiol. Um, I kind of think of the AMH giving me more information on quantity and the FSH or follicle stimulating hormone um, giving us more information about quality. And I know that this varies from practice to practice. I do that with almost all of my female patients. I know some places kind of um, do that depending on different ages. Um, But we do that. And then I generally look at some other hormones, like making sure thyroid hormone is in check, Um, you know, making sure we don't have any positive antibodies um, floating around the blood that shouldn't be there. What other testing do you do, Carrie? 
So I have a lot of women who come in with testing from their gynecologist previously, and all the blood work, easy to accept, the day three FSH and estradiol levels, easy to accept. Um, When they come in with an ultrasound, oftentimes I find that the ultrasound is complete for what the gynecologist tends to look for, but is not necessarily complete for what I look for with respect to that antral follicle count that Abby was talking about. So most of the time, I end up having to repeat that in my office just because I, that's an integral part of information for what we need. Well, and I don't know if you have this experience as well, but uh, it's amazing to me the number of things we find from doing an ultrasound on the mm-hmm. first visit. Yeah. I mean, I've seen patients that have had really large benign tumors called myomas, um, and they didn't even know about them. And, mm-hmm. and so things like that can really affect fertility and, as well. And especially when it comes to ultrasound, a live ultrasound gives you so much more information than the still images that we can get mm-hmm. from somebody else's office or just the report. Um, you know, I find that oftentimes I even diagnose septums or divisions of the uterus that can be repaired that improve um, fertility that have never been picked up. Yeah, I just, I really have a hard time reading a ultrasound report. And there is some information you can get from it, but it is true. Doing an ultrasound yourself in the office, you get so much more information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do any genetic testing? We offer panethnic carrier screening. And so everybody has two copies of genes. So what does that mean, panethnic? Panethnic. <laughs> so what that means is we don't care what you look like or who or where you think you come from. Because <laughs> <laughs> most of us don't know. Because most yeah. of us truly don't know. And and one thing that a lot of people don't realize, they're like, well, my family is very well delineated. We know that we came over on the Mayflower or at this time or they my family origins are very clearly everybody came from X country. And what most people don't realize is that throughout the centuries, there is a very clear 15% incidence of non-paternity, meaning... I didn't know that. 15% of us think we know who our fathers or ancestors are, and we don't. (laughs) We don't. And it's either the milkman or or somebody else, because before there was all this fancy fertility treatment, women took care of particularly male infertility, on their own. <laughs> and so that is something that that we always offer the pan-ethnic carrier screening because traditionally, you know, when I started residency, the thought was, okay, for African-American patients, you're going to screen them for sickle cell disease. For your Caucasian patients, you screen them for cystic fibrosis. And, and you divide things up based on where somebody's family origins are. But most of us don't truly know that. And as these screening tests have become more available, we can screen for quite a bit more. And so what was standard of care when I was a resident of checking cystic fibrosis, sickle cell, and, you know, maybe one or two other things, now our panel looks at over 250 different diseases. And I think it's important to note we can do it a lot more inexpensively than just doing one test you know, eight or 10 years ago. Absolutely. So it makes more sense cost-wise to look at lots of different things. And I'm just curious, talking about that test, how often do you find that patients you screen carry something, some condition? At least 50 to 60% of the time, especially on these expanded carrier panels that we have, you know, over 200 tests. Um, I always tell my patients that about half of people are going to be carriers. Now, most of these diseases that we're testing for have really no medical implications for them. But if they are a carrier, we definitely want to get their partner tested um, so that we can counsel them about what what are the risks and benefits of different types of treatment. 
So I think that the carrier incidence is even higher, and it may be based on just the the panel that we're running, given there's so many higher, uh, so many more tests and diseases they're looking for. But I would say probably at least 60 to 70. And part of that is because I go through all of all of the tests in our practice with our egg donors and sperm donors. Um, but it's typically thought that between five and seven different mutations are carried by each individual person. But it really only matters if you've got a match with the partner you're trying yeah, to make a baby with. I think with. that's the important point. I think early on when we started offering these tests, you know, we were worried about what are we going to tell patients when they're carriers? Well, the good news is it's only an issue if you and your partner carry the same recessive and, trait. And that's pretty darn rare. It is I pretty mean, rare. It, one it, in it, 500 to one, fi- one in 550 is the yeah, estimate. It's exactly. unusual. So, but mean, if you carry that, that's important to know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, because and it can help you make decisions. And all these these things that we're screening for affect children on a very severe level, most of them. And so it is well worth figuring out what they carry in advance. Um Okay, so we've talked about carrier testing. We've talked about the egg reserve testing. What about tubes? the dreaded HSG? That's what I was just thinking, <laughs> tube testing. So HSG stands for? Histrosalpingogram. Yep, and it's very similar in how it's phrased. So histro or hist, the baseline of that is uterus. Um, and not a coincidence that it's the same as hysteria because old school medicine. I thought that uterus made us crazy. Exactly. <laughs> and the uterus doesn't produce hormones in the same way the ovaries do. So if you're really going to go down that road, it should be related to the ovaries. But that's that's like three other podcasts. Um, <laughs> so the hysterosalpingogram is a dye test. And both of you are looking at me like you have had personal experience and you could do without it. I was thinking the same thing. Um, I've had one done. You Have you had one done? I actually did not have one done. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, but that was that was a choice I made at the time and kind of evaluated the risks and benefits. But, um, you know, HSGs are... They're, they're an important part of our evaluation. And, you know, if you go and Google an HSG, generally there's all kinds of scary things about how painful it is and everything like that. And um, what I tell patients, and I'd like to hear, especially from personal experience from Abby, is, is that, first of all, some people are going to have some discomfort during the test and some people aren't. Generally, if you can take some NSAIDs, something like ibuprofen a little bit beforehand, that does help. And even if you do have cramping with it, it it's short-lived. And, and so it's it's something that we need to go through. We get some really valuable information because if, if we're, especially if we're trying to do something um, non-invasive like IUIs or something like that, we, we need to make sure that the eggs and sperm can actually get to each other. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of the test, and we may have already said this, but just to be clear, the purpose of this test is to look at the uterine cavity, the place where the pregnancy would implant, and also to look at the fallopian tubes. And the fallopian tubes are kind of like tunnels that connect the egg and the sperm. And if both of the tunnels are blocked, then sperm and egg can't get together. And so it really is an important test. And as part of my infertility treatment several years ago, I had the test done. And, you know, it was, what I tell patients, it was uncomfortable, but it was definitely something that was necessary and important. And, you know, it it really felt like really bad menstrual cramps for about five minutes. Right when the fluid, the dye goes into the uterus, it distends the uterus. And that's, that's the part for me that was the worst. It really felt like really bad menstrual cramps 
the dye spilled out. And then shortly thereafter, I mean, the pain really went away really quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so, good. So it's, you know, it's not a great test to have done, but it's, I think it's a necessary evil is the way I say it. Absolutely. So besides looking for, I mean, obviously we're looking to see whether the tubes are open or not. And, and I always describe to my patients, I want to see little spaghetti noodles. Tubes are very delicate structures. They are very finicky and you want them to look like beautiful, really angel hair pasta coming out the, the big bulk of the uterus. But what else do you routinely look for on your HSGs? Well, you want to look at the cavity, that, which is, again, if you think of the embryo as a seed, you want to look at the soil and you want to make sure the soil looks nice and smooth. And ultimately, when the time comes and somebody gets pregnant, you want it to be nice and thick. But on the HSG or any type of test that you're looking in the cavity, you really want to make sure you don't see any little lumps or bumps, things that are either polyps or fibroids, but just little round irregular structures in the cavity. You're also, I'm also looking to see if potentially if the fallopian tubes are swollen or something called hydrosalpinx, um, fancy word for water in the tubes. Um, we know that those swollen fallopian tubes can actually contain fluid that can go back into the uterus and, and harm a developing pregnancy. So that's something important for us to be aware of. And, and if it is there, you know, potentially thinking about maybe even removing those tubes. Wait, you're telling me that you want to remove the tubes of fertility patient? Like, I know that somebody listening to this is going, (laughs) WTF, what are these doctors thinking? They are trying to help me get pregnant, and yet they're going to take out tubes, which are the very things that help me do it. And so, you know, I agree. Our same practice, just like Susan's is, is if you've got really damaged tubes, you don't want that fluid coming back and causing a problem. It increases the incidence of, um, excuse me, it decreases the incidence of successful pregnancies after in vitro fertilization in particular. But by 50%. By 50%. It's huge. I mean, nothing except for smoking pretty much has that big of an impact. Mm -hmm. It's a a gigantic thing. And, And, you know, that decision on whether we remove tubes or not is um, if you're doing non-invasive testing or treatment, um, it, it's it's a discussion. Nothing, you know, and I think that's one important thing to think about in, in fertility care is nothing is an absolute. No one is ever going to force you to do something. Um, however, I do know that at most fertility clinics, if you are going to go towards IVF and you do have those whole and fallopian tubes, um, that, that could be a, a major roadblock for you moving forward. Well, and I certainly agree with everything you have said. In some patients that are not immediately ready to go to IVF, as long as they have one open tube, mm-hmm. we'll try and do some procedures on them as long as we know they make an egg on that side. So, for example, if the left floping tube is open, they make an egg on the left side, um, then I think it's it's certainly reasonable to try to do some procedures in the office. And I've actually had pretty good success with a couple of patients I can think of that have gotten pregnant without going in surgically and removing that tube, at least not for the initial procedures that we do. Yeah. We just have to be real careful whenever that happens because we're worried about that risk of ectopic pregnancy as well mm-hmm. or a pregnancy in the wrong place. Yeah, we mm-hmm. once somebody gets pregnant, that's a very good point. We watch them really closely. We do hormone levels to make sure the hormone levels go up appropriately. And as early as we can, at about five, five and a half, weeks, we bring them in for ultrasound to really look and make sure that that embryo has implanted in the right spot, we not in the floating tube. We do the same thing. We want to make sure that the HCG or the pregnancy hormone levels are 
essentially doubling. It doesn't have to actually be fully doubling, but close to that and make sure they're going up appropriately. Because if we have somebody who has an ectopic or a tubal pregnancy, we want to know about that because most of the time we can treat it successfully with just medication and give the injection of methotrexate and save them a trip to the operating room, save them pain, save them, in many cases, save that tube and avoid some of the big problems that come with tubal pregnancies. But because our patient population is so high risk for that, we want to catch it very early on. Are, are there any other tests that you do to evaluate the inside of the uterus? So our office routinely looks at a sonohistogram, not to be confused with a hysterosalpingogram or a general sonogram or a hysteroscopy. We, we also call this test a saline ultrasound to make it a little bit... A little bit different. We call yeah. it the water ultrasound. Yeah, yeah. So if you can't remember what it is, just call and say, we need to put water in my uterus. <laughs> yes, yes. But the reason that we do that is what it is, is you take just a small amount of saline or or salt water and put it inside the uterus. And the way that we do that is we very gently place a, a very thin catheter, like a very thin straw through the cervix and put that water in and do a vaginal ultrasound. And what that allows us to do is open up the uterus enough to see what's inside. So the way that I describe it to patients is when you're getting a regular vaginal ultrasound, you're seeing the uterus, but when you're looking at the uterine lining, it's like looking at a peanut butter sandwich from the side. You can't tell if there's creamy or nutty peanut butter in there. <laughs> but when you put that saline in, it's like peeling those two pieces of bread. Okay, apart. I'm going to use that analogy. I like that. It, <laughs> it works really well because people are like, oh, because as soon as you open it up with that saline a little bit, it's like peeling those two pieces of bread apart, separating them just enough to see, okay, it, are there nuts in there? Are there big chunks of strawberry in your strawberry jelly? Is there anything we need to pay attention to and take out? Because the HSG does pick that up, but it's not as not reliable. As it's not for quite it. as good. Who are the patients that you do saline ultrasounds on? Well, typically, if we've done just a routine ultrasound on the initial visit and we're worried about that, we see things that look a little lumpy or bumpy. Um, people who have previously had polyps in the past or fibroids are ones that we would typically do a saline sonogram on. Um, how about you, Carrie? What are, who are some of the patients that you do a saline sonogram on? So we routinely do it on patients just as part of their evaluation because it, it gives us another point of contact so that we can actually talk to the patients and answer questions. Um, and it also, we find very different results. You know, when we compare our uterine results on our HSGs versus our sonohistograms, we pick up a lot more. And so those HSGs are really good at finding big cavity distortions where there's a big fibroid pushing in. They're not good at finding polyps. But they're not good at finding polyps. And if I have someone who's going to do an insemination and I put that catheter in and I hit that polyp, which I can't avoid, then there's going to be blood in there. And that's a negative pregnancy test. So I think those are that. all really good points. But unfortunately, with all the things that we do, unfortunately, for most of us in infertility, cost is the constraint. And mm -hmm. it, at least in Tennessee, for most of my patients, they don't have coverage for a saline sonogram. And it's mm. significantly more expensive, almost twice as expensive as it is to get an HSG. So what percent of your patients have diagnostic coverage? I would say probably 40% have some diagnostic oh, wow. coverage. Oh, in, in Texas, I would much. say probably about 80 to 90% okay. have diagnostic coverage because I do saline ultrasounds on, of course, anybody who I see something on the ultrasound or initial ultrasound that I'd be concerned about. But I especially kind of target 
women who are a little overweight because that increased estrogen exposure can increase the polyps. Mm -hmm. And my um, women who aren't ovulating on a regular basis since their uterus isn't cleaning house quite as well as it should every month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that at least 80% of our patients have diagnostic coverage. That's pretty routine. So the some of the things is less important on that. Some mm-hmm. of the things that I think patients don't realize as far as insurance goes is if they have really high deductible plans in the first few months of the year, yeah. it's essentially they're going to be paying out of pocket for that. And that's yeah. kind of the other constraint that's early on that we get into at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Are, are there other things that you routinely do? Or is that kind of what you normally do for a, a basic evaluation? That's pretty much the basic evaluation. I think that's the basic evaluation. And, you know, I think one important point is it doesn't hurt to come in and just talk because, um, you know, I always tell patients, I'm really, my job is to educate you, to let you know what the options are. And then, you know, it's your your job to decide what you want to do. And I'll be happy to help in any way. But certainly I'm not going to push off on you something that I think you need to do. I'm just going to give you the options and kind of let you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, again, um, as we've said numerous times, there there is power in that knowledge. And that's what we're here to do to help our patients. Would much rather they know rather than not know. So, all right. Well, thank you, ladies, both very much. It's always wonderful talking to you. It is such a treat and such a wonderful part of my day to sit down and and actually have these kind of straightforward discussions. Because we don't often, when we go to our big meetings, we're talking about overall big concepts and minute de- minute details about physiology, but it's really nice just to sit down and go through the basics that we all take for granted, but hearing some of the nuances is... And just is chat wonderful. with our friends. This is fun. Absolutely. It is. It Absolutely. Is. Well, thank you both very much. So we're sitting here with Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center and Dr. Abby Eblen from National, Nashville Fertility Center. I am Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. We hope you all have a wonderful day and take care. We'll be back soon. See y'all soon. Bye. See you later.